This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Professor Stephen Lowe of USC Union. He's a history professor up there. And he has a new book out entitled The Slow Undo, The Federal Courts and the Long Struggle for Civil Rights in South Carolina. Steve, welcome to the journal. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, let's talk a little bit about you. Where did you come from? I know you did a stint at Clemson, but, you know, this is South Carolina. Who are your, who are your folks and all of that kind of thing? Well, I was, I was born in Waycross, Georgia, and uh, my father uh, was, worked for a defense contractor, and my mom was studying to be a nurse. So I lived with my grandparents for a while, and then uh, when I started living with my parents, we bopped around the country quite a bit, lived in California and New Jersey, finally settling in Charleston or a little outside Charleston in Ladson, and uh, lived there for a long time, uh, went to the College of Charleston, uh, then after the College of Charleston, I uh, went to Clemson for my master's degree and then to, uh, of all places, Michigan State University for my PhD. And uh, came back down here and, and taught at uh, South Carolina State for a year, taught at USCF State. Uh, actually went back to school to get a second master's in educational administration. And that sort of led me into my current position, which is administrative and faculty. And uh, in addition to being a professor at USC Union, I'm a director of two programs with Palmetto College, the Bachelor's in Organizational Leadership and the Bachelor's in Liberal Studies. Okay. Well, I was very curious because when you talked about the folks with whom you worked at, at Clemson, uh, Bill Starr and Alan Schaffer, uh, Dear friends of mine, of course, Alan hasn't been with us for a while, but mm -hmm. uh, that brought back some historical memories. They were, uh, and, and all the faculty at, at Clemson were just wonderful people, and uh, you know they took me in. I was uh, I, I was not a, an American historian when I started there. I, my specialty at the College of Charleston was uh, Latin America and Asia. And when I went to Clemson, I started getting really more interested in U.S. history and actually did my master's thesis on Strom Thurmond's 1954 Senate campaign, his write-in campaign. Okay. So let's get down to your book. How long have you been working on this topic? I have been working on the topic for probably 30 years now. It has a strange sort of gestational process, but uh, when I started working on my dissertation topic, I was originally, because I was interested in, in a, a book that G. Edward White had written, a bio biography of Supreme Court justices, I was originally going to look at the federal court judges in South Carolina and do sort of a judicial biography of them. But as I got interested in the topic and got deep, more deeply into the topic, the civil rights cases in the federal courts really uh, stuck out and attracted my attention. And so I changed gears a little bit and began working on looking at the court records for those cases. And that became my dissertation. And then the dissertation eventually became, became the book after, I think, three or four major edits and quite a few minor edits to what I had done, in addition to adding some new stuff that had come up along the way. The title suggests something that had to be undone, uh, the civil rights movement in South Carolina. In looking at that, the way others have dealt with it, much of the focus seems to have been on civil rights activism, on the demonstrations, on who got arrested, the jail, no bail, uh, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But but you, you argue, I think, very cogently that it was really a two-pronged approach. It, there was a legal approach as well as the activist approach. Right. And I, I don't think – it's my opinion that the civil rights movement would not have been as effective if both of those approaches hadn't been used. I think they reinforced each other in a lot of ways. And I, I think both are important, obviously. Uh, but because the attention to legal issues – really subsided after after Brown. 
I, I think a, not enough attention had been paid to some of the smaller cases in which African Americans were really attempting to get Brown enforced and co- to create an understanding of what Brown versus Board of Education meant and how far it uh, it could go in terms of uh, in terms of the law and in terms of society. All right. I think we're still working on that, actually, in a lot of ways. But. All right. Well, let's go back to the 1940s when it's certainly from the judicial side, uh, the story begins in South Carolina. Sure. Um, well, one of the interesting things that I found was an actual federal prosecution of uh, white election officials in Gaffney. They had prevented a woman by the name of Lottie Gaffney and some others from registering to vote in 1942. And so uh, she complained to the Justice Department and the, the, there was actually an, a, a prosecution rather than a civil suit, uh, a prosecution that in, ended up with uh, the white election officials being acquitted and some recriminations really on both sides. Uh, Ms. Gaffney was not satisfied with the outcome of the case and the federal attorney, um, whose name was Oscar Doyle, was not really happy with uh, Lottie Gaffney's performance, if you will, on, on the witness stand. And so it ended up more or less with the election situation being pretty much the same as it had been uh, before the case went on. And so, but that was really the last time that uh, we had an actual prosecution for that for some time. So what happens from that point is that uh, the NAACP gets more and more involved. And instead of uh, seeking prosecutions, they engage in civil lawsuits to create a situation where African-Americans can vote freely in elections in, in the state. And, and that, of course, leads us to 1944 and 46, where the Democratic uh, Party basically tried to make itself a private club and to uh, escape state and federal regulation in that way after uh, the Texas case, Smith v. Allwright. And so... Right, ex- explain what Smith v. Allwright did. Sure. Um, Smith v. Allwright was, uh, as, as many of your listeners probably know, but, but some may, may not know all the details, in many southern states, if not most southern states, um, there was a phenomenon called the, the white primary in, in which the uh, primary election, which was, and, and it was dominated by Democrats, white Democrats, and the primary election in any given state was essentially the election for, uh, for the whatever office it happened to be. And so when African-Americans tried to vote, they would encounter obstacles at being able to register for the Democratic primary. And as such, uh, people in Texas brought a case and it went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said that the white primary could, as it was a part of the machinery of the election, was unconstitutional. And so what uh, South Carolina tried to do uh, in a special session of the legislature was to go in and get rid of all of the laws pertaining to elections so that uh, the Democratic Party or any other party could uh, manage and run elections uh, independently of the machinery of the state. And they thought that that was going to be a way to get around all of those issues. And, of course, they, they weren't, but it did you know, stall things for quite some time. Well, that was an incredible <coughs> legislative session, a special – the governor called a special mm-hmm. session of the General Assembly. Right. Uh, I think it was in the summertime, and over 100 laws were taken from the books – uh, and one journalist for the then News and Curry referred to it as the Kill Billy session of the General Assembly. Um, and this was to make the Democratic Party in South Carolina a private club. Right. The consequences of that were uh, a couple of, of, of suits, both of which were in Judge Wadey's Waring's court. 
in which he basically said that it was time for South Carolina to rejoin the Union. I remember one of your uh, earlier shows that I listened to in the last week or so, this was one of those things that caused uh, in, in the, I remember the author's name, but the book is in Darkest South Carolina, um, where that's one of the things that really started wearing down the path of being more attuned to the Constitution from an, uh, an African-American or egalitarian perspective. He, he actually, there were a few counties, uh, Lawrence County, Hampton, and maybe a couple of others that I can't recall right off the top of my head, had moved towards allowing African-Americans to vote in the primary. And uh, he actually released them from the suit. But the other counties who were continuing to limit African-American voting, he uh, kept them in the suit and he ruled that, uh, that they couldn't do that. And that's not the only thing that's going on in the 40s. There are also teachers' salary cases in the 40s uh, in, in Charleston and elsewhere, um, which when the state was forced to uh, or the counties were forced to um, equalize teacher salaries, there were lawsuits about that. And the state instituted the teacher exam. And there was some controversy there as well as there were allegations of cheating in the teacher exam and uh, another lawsuit that came up out of that, and people were losing their jobs or being uh, essentially demoted because of the results of the of the teaching exam. So when you tie the salary structure to the results of a teaching exam, and that teaching exam essentially favors white teachers, then you have continued, if not worse, disparity in in salaries. So the 40s were a really interesting time for getting all of this sort of off the ground, if you will, and moving towards uh, increased activism in the late 40s and early 50s. Well, and of course, the, the 1948 Democratic primary is the first time that significant African-American voters were able to participate. Mm -hmm. And ironically, in the gubernatorial race, African-Americans supported Strom Thurmond as the candidate of choice. That was in 1946, but they they did support Strom Thurmond mm -hmm. uh, as the most progressive candidate. That's saying something. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Do we jump from the 1940s strictly straight to Brown in 1954? Well, uh, in the book, I, I don't cover uh, Briggs and Brown uh, in as great a... Uh, as deeply as I might have, primarily because of Simple Justice, Richard Kluger's monumental effort at, at covering that case and all of the uh, subsequent popular culture and academic work that's been done on it. But essentially, Briggs is a very key point, obviously, because one of the things that's happening here is that instead of professionals – teachers and, and, and the like, you have rank and file, ordinary people, gas station attendants, maids, people like that who are just ordinary people coming together to try to achieve fairness and equality in the education for their children. And essentially, at least as far as uh, Briggs goes, uh, even though Briggs was part of Brown v. Board of Education and even though the Supreme Court said that segregation in education is unconstitutional, the, the Briggs district as well as other districts in that part of the state and really across the state from most of the 50s and 60s and in some cases into the 70s did not comply and, or did not comply in the, in the spirit of the law. Perhaps you know, uh, complying in the in the letter of the law, but not in the spirit. In in your introduction to the book, you you make a I think a, a fascinating point. You talk about the law and the Constitution, and you you, you say, and I'm going to quote from your your introduction. In some respects, the white leaders who resisted the course of integration and social justice in the courts shared with their black counterparts a significant trait a belief in the rule 
of law. For black citizens, the rule of the law meant equality and justice as established in the 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. Due process of law, equal protection, and equal treatment, and a sense of fairness that went beyond the written words of the document. For white people, the rule of law required a strict reading of the Constitution, and it often required them to ignore the original intent of the Reconstruction Amendments, a precedent that had been established in the late 19th century, and that would, of course, have been a reference to Plessy mm-hmm. B. Ferguson, for example. Um, when the courts deviated from their perception, it was legitimate to resist the courts and to question their authority. I think that's a very powerful statement about what transpires from the 1940s into the 21st century in South Carolina in the courts. Right, and and there are probably too many examples to, to give, but there are so many examples of uh, white South Carolinians uh, ordinary white South Carolinians, as well as uh, those with some political power and influence, whose idea in response to the Supreme Court's judgments in Brown and other cases was to almost to uh, revive the idea of interposition uh, and to resist federal law. It, it almost uh, reminded me uh, several times of what Andrew Jackson said. Um, I think it was Worcester v. Georgia. Let, you know, the, ju- the justice has made his uh, ruling. Now let's see him enforce it. Um, I, I think there's some of that in the mindset of many, uh, many white South Carolinians in the aftermath of of these cases. And one of the other things that you see, in addition to resistance, that the whole idea of Plessy having not having been over overruled or overturned, there was really a lot of focus on the reciprocity of rights. Sure, African Americans may have these rights, but what about our rights not to, you know, what about our rights as white people uh, to associate with those whom we want to associate with. That was one of the things that Judge Timmerman uh, talked about in the, the bus case, in the uh, SEENG uh, bus case in Columbia, as well as in the airport case in Greenville. The idea that separate waiting rooms for African Americans were not necessarily just there to insulate whites from black people, but to give both races the opportunity to be around the people that they felt more comfortable with. Steve, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Steve Lowe about his new book, The Slow Undoing, The Federal Courts and the Long Struggle for Civil Rights in South Carolina. All right, Steve, let's go back to the bus case, Sarah Mae Fleming. Mm-hmm. She's one of the folks that you single out as heroes or heroines of the civil rights movement that are not very well known uh, outside of a very limited circle of, mm-hmm. I guess, legal scholars. And she, it was involved the Columbia bus system run by, as you mentioned, SCENG, and she refused. And this is pre-Rosa Parks, is it not? It is, yes. It's before Rosa Parks and the famous Montgomery bus boycott. This young woman in Columbia refuses to go behind the white line to sit in the back of the bus. Mm-hmm. And I'll let you take it from there. Well, she she was, um, like so many other people, just um, in a situation where uh, I, I don't recall exactly if it was standing room only and she needed to sit down or if it was just a matter of not wanting to sit where she had been designated to sit, but uh, she did not. And the bus driver actually sort of manhandled her a little bit and uh, ended up throwing her off the, off the bus. And she, and she's actually with a friend at the time, and she decided to sue. And the case came before uh, Judge George Bell Timmerman Sr., the father of the, uh, the governor or eventual governor, and her case went, I think it went back and forth between Timmerman's court and the appellate court three times 
before there was any resolution because of Timmerman's, um, for lack of a better word, bullheadedness on the idea of segregation having not been overruled by Brown versus Board of Education. So his argument is that that Brown does not it does not apply to the field of public transportation. It only applies to public education. And so uh, he's saying this. It goes to the appellate court. The appellate court says, no, it actually says this. And then he came up with something else, and it went back and forth for a while. And finally, it, it was after the Rosa Parks bus boycott situation had almost been completely resolved by the time uh, the Sarah Mae Fleming case had finally resolved itself, which is why, in a lot of ways, she becomes, even though she she's one of the first people to challenge segregation in public transportation, um, she ends up as being almost a footnote in most cases, in most uh, uh, academic work, and or ignored entirely. Uh, there was another similar case like that in Virginia, as I recall. Uh, which was uh, resolved after the Rosa Parks situation. Well, would this be the case that, for example, in Montgomery, Rosa Parks led to the bus boycott, which became a national news story? Right. And these other cases are just languishing in the courts, going bouncing back and forth between the appellate court and the, and the district court and not really bringing a lot of notoriety to them as, as a process. But is the, the Fleming case the beginning of a pattern where – a decision is, or a judgment is made in South Carolina and federal courts. It goes to an, it's appealed, it's kicked back, and it this sort of ping pong. Uh, in other words, the federal judges in South Carolina, for the most part, are uh, supportive of the way things are. Mm-hmm. That does happen quite a bit. I think um, uh, Timmerman's. Court is probably uh, most responsible for that, but it does happen among later judges as well. There are a, a lot of situations where a case will be decided by a, a South Carolina district judge and uh, in favor of the the white power structure or what have you, and then the case would be appealed by the NAACP, and the case would bounce back and forth for a while. But uh, that happens less and less as uh, the appellate courts get more adamant and the Supreme Court uh, ultimately gets to the point where they're, they're tiring, I think, of, of getting all of these uh, picayune cases uh, from states that – on issues that they thought should have been handled and taken care of ages ago. But it, it does happen, and that's one of the things that's fascinating about this is that uh, the appellate courts are really more in tune, for the most part, with the, the Supreme Court, whereas the district court seems to uh, engage in a, a little bit more freedom to, to throw things around because they know that the case is going to be appealed. So they have a little bit more uh, – I don't want to say leeway – but a little bit more uh, freedom to to accept things and to rule to cer- rule certain ways, because they know that whatever they do is likely to be appealed by one party or the other. Okay. All right. Let's kind of look at, at some of the issues in, in particular. Let's start with with Brown and education and how South Carolina reacted from 1954 until the schools were truly desegregated in 1970. That's almost a generation. Well, there were always threats to close down school districts, as happened in Virginia. I, I think one of the most significant things that happened in, in white South Carolina is the creation of segregation academies and the establishment of these schools where uh, white students moved in, in droves to the point where, in some cases, it was impossible to really have a desegregated school district in some in some places in, in the state because there weren't enough white students in the district to establish a genuinely desegregated system. Uh, that's one of the things that I found r- truly fascinating. The other thing that I found really interesting is the the emphasis on 
the differences in cognitive ability between African-American and white students. There was a case in Savannah, Stell, I think was the name of the case, and there was, and some of the same arguments were used in the Charleston case, uh, Brown versus Charleston School District. And basically what happened is a group of parents in both situations joined the case as interveners, which is somebody who's from coming from outside to almost like a, an amicus case, would try to make an argument that's not part of the central argument of the case, but one that they thought was uh, necessary and relevant. And in this case, their arguments were based on some spurious science and were intended to demonstrate that African-American students lagged behind and were not uh, did not have the same intellectual uh, abilities as white students, and therefore putting them in a classroom with white students would just drag the white students down. That was one of the things that was persistent through, especially in the early 60s, but really into the late 60s as well, um, these ideas. Uh, I remember there was one person, it might have been Augustus Graydon, who said, that in one of his memoranda that uh, it, the solution would be you put – if you put students of equal intellectual attainment, you're going to have a room full of you know 12-year-old white kids and 15-year-old black kids or you put them in the same age group and you're going to have intellectual – and ability disparities that would not really raise up the black kids, but would slow down the white kids. So that argument persists as one of the main areas of, of resistance and of, of whites during this, this period. So in addition to things like citizens' councils and boycotts, you also have people using, I hesitate to call it science, but um, I'll put maybe in quotation marks, and the legal system to try to slow things down and to make those kinds of arguments that really had no basis in reputable social science. Well, I checked what Graydon was talking about. If you used IQ, you would have sections. One would be all white. Then there would be a large grouping of equal black and white, and then there would be an all-black section at the, at the bottom. Right. Um, so, yeah, his, his basic belief was that uh, intellectual ability uh, was more characteristic, uh, high intellectual ability is more characteristic of white students. And so you would have, um, I hate to use the term because it's a loaded term, but you would have a bell curve of highly intellectual uh, or high achieving white students. Then you'd have a large middle of average students, maybe more black than white, and then at the bottom, you would have uh, very low-achieving students, almost all of whom would be black. Well, you mentioned the other Brown case, and I think don't want people to get confused. There was a case in South Carolina in Charleston County brought by uh, Arthur Brown, who was head of the state NAACP, Mm -hmm. and his daughter was Millicent Brown. I've known Millicent for years. She was mm-hmm. she was one of the test cases, and her IQ basically blew the argument apart. <laughs> it sure did. Uh, but they fa- they still found a way to try to keep her out of school. They did, uh, and. and uh, I, I met uh, Millicent some some time ago. She actually commented on uh, a version of. This story I presented at the Southern Historical Association years ago, and I first met her there. And um, we've corresponded occasionally since then. But uh, yeah, she she was uh, the the thing is this is this is what happens when you get a high achieving African American person who would obviously put the lie to the idea that that black students can't be high achieving, but when they encountered one or two or a few who were trying to desegregate schools, what they would do is say, well, if we take them out of the black schools, then the black schools won't have this intellectual leadership. So they, they, they make the argument on, on, you know, on both, both ways. They say that there, there can't be high-achieving black students, and yet when, when, when 
shown high-achieving high black students, they say, well, these are people who are going to be the leaders of the black community. We really shouldn't take them out of the black schools. Well, <laughs> you have that with the children, but what you also have happening in the late 1950s, the end of the 1960s, is the, the threats that are used by the white establishment to get rid of black teachers, mm-hmm. punish well, we, already, we, we know about what happened in the Briggs case of people losing their jobs, right. firebombing of house and houses and what have you. Um, but in Ellery, South Carolina, they fired all of the teachers at the Ellery Training School. Mm-hmm. And part of it was because the teachers refused to sign a statement, a form given out by the district superintendent about their participation in the NAACP. You, you have a portion of the, the form that they were supposed oh, to yeah. answer. Yeah. And these are the questions that you want your contract renewed this year. This, you're going to have to answer these questions. Are you satisfied with your work in the schools as they're now maintained? Yes, no. If yes, comment on the back. Do you feel that you would be happy in an integrated school system, knowing that parents and students do not favor this system? Yes, no. Check one and give reason for answer. Do you feel that an integrated school system would better fit the colored race in their life's work? Yes, no. Check one and give reason for the answer. Do you think that you're satisfied to teach an integrated class in a satisfactory manner? Yes, no, check one and give reason for answer. Do you feel that the parents of your school know that no public schools will be operated if they are integrated? Yes, no. Do you believe in the aims of the NAACP? Yes, no. If you should join the NAACP while employed in this school, please notify the superintendent and chairman of the board of trustees. Yes, no. State law made it illegal for a person to belong to the NAACP to hold any kind of publicly funded job. Right. It was, um, there are just innumerable references, even by some of the judges. Um, Might have been Cecil Weish, I'm not sure, but they, where the NAACP was basically considered uh, to be an equivalent organization to the Ku Klux Klan. And although that's demonstrably untrue, that was the idea that the NAACP was a subversive organization and there were people who were trying in the 50s to get it put on the, the, the list of subversive organizations. And uh, South Carolina did, did just that. I mean, they, were, they, uh, they made it illegal to be a member of the NAACP created what you just read there, which is tantamount to a loyalty oath, and fired all those teachers. And the teachers brought suit, and it was uh, another one of those situations where the idea of American constitutionalism, two ideas of it sort of butted heads in the context of this case and and many others. And so I, I really have a tremendous respect for people who not only joined the NAACP, but, but proudly joined the NAACP and, and let people know that they were members of the NAACP when so much was riding on their economic well-being for being members of the NAACP and, and other organizations. Steve, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Steve Lowe about his Book, the Slow Undoing, The Federal Courts and the Long Struggle for Civil Rights in South Carolina. Steve, I'd like to look at a, at a couple more of these heroes that you, that you have in your book. Gloria Rackley from Orangeburg, mm-hmm. for one, uh, and her participation, her activism really started because she was trying to get her little girl treated in the Orangeburg Hospital. Right, and she was uh, a member of the NAACP, and and, and her her daughter had, had broken her finger, I believe, 
they they took her to the hospital for treatment, and she was told to sit in the, the color waiting room, and she didn't think there should be a color waiting room in a federally funded hospital, and so she sued. She was ultimately fired from her position because of her activism, and she sued. Uh, she actually won her job back, but she had already moved to Virginia and started working on, on graduate work and things like that. Ended up being, I believe, a professor at Emory. I interviewed her uh, years ago. Uh, she was living down in uh, uh, south of Atlanta, Georgia, and I, I interviewed her at the time. Really remarkable woman who stood up to the people who were trying to just maintain the status quo as as much as they possibly could. And it was people like her who really made the civil rights movement possible. Obviously, you have lawyers like Thurgood Marshall and Matthew Perry, John Wrighton to a somewhat lesser extent, but still important. But without the plaintiffs, uh, you really don't have a case, obviously. So I think some of these these people who really were willing to pick up the fight and do something, even though they knew that they could suffer pretty severe consequences, uh, just impressed me throughout the work that I was doing on the book. I mentioned Rackley. It was all a question of public accommodations, and people immediately think about, well, can they go into a restaurant? But this applied to across the spectrum of uh, communities. You're talking about libraries. You're mm-hmm. talking about parks. You're talking about the hospitals. And so there were cases in all of these areas. People remember the Edisto State Park being closed. Right. Uh, the state closed it down rather than admit black people to Edisto State Park, which, you know, in the 21st century, we think, gosh, they closed it down so nobody could use the <laughs> The state park. White folks couldn't use the state right. park. But that, that was the mindset. If, if we couldn't get it around it legally, we'll just shut it down. Right. It's, it sounds absurd to a 21st century listener. It sounded absurd when I was reading it and doing the, doing the research. But that was the mindset. And it is really an incredible uh, uh, looking at that now from the, the point of view of 50, 60 years later. But... It really is amazing to to see some of this stuff. Well, you do talk about some white officials who, particularly in the 1960s, began to think a little differently. And you single out Lester Bates, who was mayor of Columbia, and his uh, biracial committee that he he established. Yeah, I I think um, without getting too cynical— because I don't want to be cynical because you, there always has to be a sort of um, an underlying belief in these things. But, but he and, and many others in the state, a state that was beginning to attract international business, realized that a system that grew up and was the offshoot of a, which essentially uh, a 19th century way of life was not going to be viable economically or socially in the late 20th century and if they were looking ahead into the 21st century. And they began to realize this and they, and they began to work toward some kind of accommodation where the, the old system, the 19th century system could be um, left behind where it belonged, and a new system of racial cooperation and economic success for everybody could could come along and take its place. I think we're still working towards that, but that is, um, I think that was one of the driving forces in all of this. It wasn't just economics, and it certainly wasn't just merely social justice, but I think it was the two things coming together and people were realizing that if you have social justice, you can attract uh, business and when you attract business, you create jobs and through the economy, you can create even more social justice and economic justice as well. I have heard or I heard they're no longer with us from businessmen who were in Colombia in the summer of 1963 and basically, there was a closed meeting of, of 
folks who had stores on Main Street and the door was closed and Lester Bates told them they were going to take down white-only, colored-only signs in their stores, whether they liked it or not. And it did happen. I don't know what else was said, but uh, I have heard that from I heard that from several folks who mm-hmm. were part of the desegregation process, at least of Columbia in the, the mid-1960s. And you mentioned the business world. Charles Daniels' right. famous watermelon speech at the Hampton Watermelon Festival where he basically said, Segregation's got to go. Right. I was actually going to bring that up next. Okay. Um, well, but, but yeah, I mean, I think I think that's what we're t- what we're looking at here is people who are, you know, I, I don't want to make heroes out of out of everybody who comes along, but uh, some of these people really went out on a limb socially in order to. Uh, and when I say socially, I mean among the, the, the social set that they were members of in order to uh, achieve uh, what they believed was a positive good for society, which was the end of segregation and uh, the beginning of prosperity uh, for as many people in South Carolina as possible. And like I said, I think we're still moving toward that. But uh, but if it hadn't been for some of these folks, we, we wouldn't have moved forward toward it maybe as quickly. Some people refer to 1963 as a year of decision, a pivot point. Um, folks quibble with that. But a lot of things did happen mm-hmm. that, that year. The desegregation at Clemson, desegregation at the University of South Carolina, and in communities across the state, the dropping of white-only, colored-only signage in segregation. But some of that, particularly in towns, was driven by the fact that uh, Ida Quincy Newman and the state NAACP were threatening mass boycotts in cities across the state if they didn't do that. Right. Uh, Well, I I must confess I'm one of the quibblers uh, when it comes to 1963. It is a vitally important year. If it hadn't been for Gantt, if it hadn't been for uh, uh, Henri Monteith, if it hadn't been for Millicent Brown, if it hadn't been for Lester Bates— the rest of the decade would not have looked the way it looked. Uh, but the problem is that, especially outside of the larger towns and cities of the state, things continued to drag on at a uh, very, very slow pace. And it's because of that that while 63 is a pivot point, uh, and as some have called it, the year of decision the decision really – the decision that was made in 1963 wasn't clear to everybody in 1967, 1968. Even with the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in 64 and 65, there were still people who were not getting the benefits of laws and decisions that had been passed years before. So it, it really – for the purposes of, of my work, I think the – the big year is 68 when, and, and the, the decision in the uh, New Kent County uh, case up in Virginia, which basically uh, took Brown to the second Brown v. Board of Education where all deliberate speed was, was set up as the model. And uh, I, I, I always remember uh, when Thurgood Marshall was being interviewed about that, he, he, said, he said something about, uh, well, they said all deliberate speed, and everybody knows deliberate means slow. So that's what you got. And I think he said it pretty much that way, too. But uh, by 68, I think the, the, the feds and the Supreme Court were getting uh, impatient. Uh, I'll just use that word to be kind. Uh, and said, look, you gotta, you've got to do this, and you've got to do it by 1970. And and so it happened in 1970, and uh, you know it wasn't a 100 percent success, and we've still got problems, but uh, it has gone better than perhaps it would have otherwise. You mentioned the Voting Rights Act, and uh, to people today, there's still no understanding about how easy it was to keep people from voting. And I registered to vote in December 1964. I had turned 21, and federal marshals in Mobile County were administering the registration process. Mm. Well, I had to be accompanied by a registered voter. My grandmother took me 
to register. She first of all thought it was outrageous that here I was, 21, and I had to have somebody escort me to to say who I was so I could register to vote. Wow. And then the marshal pulled out. They had two boxes. They told me this later behind the, the counter with tests. One very simple, ABC, the other a complicated interpretation of the Alabama Constitution. Well, to this 21-year-old guy who had grown up in a segregated world, this is pretty apparent. This is the test. If you were black, you got that from the registrar. Otherwise, it was, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and that's— Right. It really it really is amazing. And, um, and that's, you know, that's one reason that—, that not just my book, but other books, I mean, uh, that are coming out about the history of all of this are so important because we're we're sort of being dragged back to that kind of situation where, as far as I know, nobody is planning to come up with new literacy tests. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if some legislator somewhere uh, had that in a file someplace. Uh, but we are moving backwards a little bit in some cases. And I think the Supreme Court's uh, sort of backing away from the Voting Rights Act is is to some degree responsible for that. And we need to work on that as a nation because, you know, there, voting is the most important thing that we can do. And if, if people can't vote and, be, and are being prevented from voting, that is a major problem. I, I'm one of those people who thinks that if you don't want to vote, then don't vote. But if you want to vote and can't, that's a major problem, and we need to look at it. Steve, we got about five minutes. Let's go back to the unknown heroes and, and John Wrighton and the impact he had, particularly on the legal education of African Americans in South Carolina. Sure. I mean, John Wrighton was a, was a veteran, and he wanted to get a law school uh, degree, and he applied to the University of South Carolina Law School, which, of course, was segregated at the time. And there had been provisions even before he applied in, in the state budget providing funds to South Carolina State for uh, legal education for African Americans. And he, he went to court. Thurgood Marshall represented him. And, and Marshall was really pushing for desegregation of the University of South Carolina Law School and might have been able to pull it off except that I don't uh, judge judge Waring was the judge in the case and I don't think judge Waring was quite ready yet uh, to jump entirely into a full-on desegregation and I don't think that Wrighton at the time he was sort of strapped financially if I recall correctly and he had some other issues going on and I don't think at the time he was willing to drag out a long case and so when the opportunity came to build a law school at South Carolina State, despite the fact that everyone knew it wouldn't be equal to the university's law school. Wrighton accepted that opportunity, and he wasn't even in the first class. I think he was in the second class of uh, matriculants at the South Carolina State uh, University Law School. But he did graduate, and he actually does become a civil rights lawyer uh, among other things, of course, uh, on his own and uh, represents uh, students in school cases later on as well as some other folks. But I, I think, you know, and this is one of the things, the tensions between uh, the NAACP sometimes and their clients really doesn't get brought out a lot. And I think the Wrighton case probably brings it out more so than any other case that I study in the book because uh, Marshall is – more or less incensed at Wrighton. Wrighton has money problems. He d he's almost ready to go back into the army. Um, he he actually wrote Mrs. Waring, which uh, Marshall upbraided him for for being totally inappropriate. But Wrighton does go on. He gets his his law degree, and he does go on to uh, work in some of those cases in the fifties and, and early sixties as well, and does a does a pretty good job of it. In the end. So, uh, you know, it's one of those means to an end kind of things. If he had had to wait for the University of South Carolina to to appeal and do all of that other stuff, he might have gone back into the Army and never never gotten a legal education. Well, that law school at, at SC State produced some very prominent lawyers 
in South Carolina, Indeed Matthew Matthew Perry, Lincoln Jenkins, mm-hmm. uh, Hemphill Pride, uh, Judge Finney, Chief Justice Finney, right. Ernest Finney. So um, it has a very proud legacy for for as few years as it existed. It had it, it put out a lot of really good lawyers. I hate to say this, but Alfred's giving us the wind up sign. <laughs> so. Steve, any any last comments that you'd like to make before we sign off today? Uh, just just briefly, I'd like to to uh, first of all thank you for having me on the show uh, today, and I think that I hope I can encourage people to continue looking at this issue and uh, exploring not just the history but the law behind all of this, and uh, to keep working towards what I think all of my protagonists. On the African American side of this, we're we're working toward, which is a fair, just, and equitable society under the Constitution. All right, Stephen Lowe, the author of *The Slow Undoing: The Federal Courts, The Long Struggle for Civil Rights in South Carolina*. Thanks so much for being with us today on the Journal. My pleasure. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal and maybe learned a little bit more about our state's complicated history. Steve Lowe has written a book that brings to light everyday men and women, not just the lawyers, not just the people who got the headlines, but the ordinary men and women who helped make a difference in the fight for civil rights in South Carolina. It's quite a moving story. It was not easy on their part to take a stand, but take a stand they did. And because they did, South Carolina began to change and is still changing. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.